China's gone ute crazy, we enter the weird and wonderful world of Chinese pickups. Yes, it's time to strap in for another edition of the Cars Guide podcast, the show that takes you beyond the test drive. This is episode 202, Chinese Ute's Gone Wild, Move Over, Hilux and Ranger. I'm Cars Guide Deputy Editor James, and joining me to discuss these Hilux and Ranger challenging newcomers is Cars Guide Deputy News Editor Justin. Hello. As well as staff journalist and resident EV guru Tom. Hello. For the last time, hoping we don't face another global pandemic in the near future, uh, we're lifting up the B&D roller door and peering into the corners of the Cars Guide garage. Looking back on our hero cars and memorable drives, our fresh metal in the garage segment will be back online next week. We'll also dive into your feedback. Um, and as we get going, YouTubers, if you want to plot your own adventure, you can jump ahead courtesy of the time codes in the notes below. And you can click on the chapter markers in the timeline. So let's hit the start button. So our very own Chesto has written a story during the week. And he's saying that, yep, China's gone ute crazy. All of a sudden, they've discovered these vehicles. Um, and it's a new passion. They're in all shapes and sizes. And they're starting to uh, rival the USA and Australia in terms of their dedication to this particular automotive format. And what he's done is taken a, a virtual stroll through the Chengdu Motor Show um, in China to pick out his five favourites that he alleges will make the Toyota Hilux, Ford Ranger, even the Ram 1500 and Ford F-150 look positively old school. Um, by comparison. So let's take a look at, the, at those top five and see what we make of them, eh? Um, now, the first one, amazing combination. Great Wall and Shelby making the Dragon Bullet. So, yep, you heard that right. It's American performance icon Shelby and GWM partnering to make a ute. And it's got the lot. It's a reinforced, right back to a reinforced chassis Fox off-road shocks, Toyo all-terrain rubber. It's got the twin spares on the back, you know, Baja or, you know, um, Dakar style. What do you guys make of this one? It's an absolute beast to look at. I'm sure those watching on YouTube will uh, see the images of it now, but uh, it, it certainly looks uh, aggressive. You know, it's one of those ones where if it was in your rear view mirror, <laughs> you definitely would notice it and potentially get out of the way. But um, I think... The magic in this particular vehicle is in the name Dragon Bullet. I mean, oh, man. amazing. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. It sounds like a movie franchise. It really does. Yeah, Tom? It's, um, it's, it's look is confronting. Uh, I'll just say that. Like they've replaced <laughs> the big, uh, you know, chrome, traditionally chrome Great Wall Cannon grill with this sort of very gnarly looking more. It's almost um, like it's melted something at the edges. It's sort of yeah. <laughs> the whole car is just letting go. A jet yeah. torch to it. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It's kind of like uh, bow shaped. Yeah, almost. Yeah. Actually, the, the grill uh, looks like a PlayStation controller. That's what it looks like. <laughs> that's what it looks like. Yeah. But it's but it's got the Shelby stripes, you know, down the yeah. down the vehicle as well. It's just such a bizarre combination. And even the color is a bit full on. But like, the, this is the thing that surprises me. I, I don't know why more manufacturers aren't getting on this uh, Raptor style thing. Like, it's like do the Fox shocks, do the wire track, do all the you know factory off road stuff. Uh, it, you know, we've seen such success with with Raptor doing it, and then. We've seen a few follow-ups from rival automakers that like don't quite go the distance of fully replacing the shocks, like to a degree. I think that yep. the Walkinshaw 
um, Amarok. Amarok. You think of the Navara Warrior as well? Yeah, Navara Warrior, but it, it seems to just stop just short of going the full way, right? Um, so, I, you know, I, I think it, trying to bring something like this to, to the market would, um, you know, mix things up definitely. Certainly would. I mean, I'm another thing you talk about going the, the, the whole hog, the thing they haven't done is open up the bonnet and do mm. much under there as far as we mm-hmm. understand it. It's still the same in a similar fashion to Ranger Raptor. Um, it's still a two-litre four-cylinder turbo diesel, 120 kilowatts, 400 newton metres. It's not exactly mind-blowing in terms of its mm. output, but it's about allegedly about its off-road performance. So it's yeah. very, sim- very similar in that regard. Yeah, I think I the modern what, Utes and that Elko, you like you said, JC, with the uh, Raptor as a key example, it's not necessarily about on-road performance so much as it is off-road performance. Not to say that this Dragon Bullet could potentially keep up with a, a Raptor on the dirt or something like that, but, uh, you know, it'd certainly go better than a regular cannon. I think the interesting thing about it is, like, apparently that's not what consumers are demanding. Like they, they want the off-road stuff and they want it covered by warranty, but not necessarily a bigger engine. Like the Raptor is still wildly successful. People get in the comment section and say, I wish I had the V6 from America. I wish it had this, I wish I had that, whatever. Yeah. But it hasn't stopped people from buying it. So great point. Most, I mean, most people that want the V6 will get their uh, wish uh, coming true soon enough though. Do you think so? That's your mail? I, think, mm, I reckon the smart money's on it. Yep. Okay. What about the stupid money? On it not happening. Stupid, stupid money. Oof. VA. I don't, know if I'd be betting, I don't know if I'd be betting against it. I'll just say that. Okay. Very good. All right. Well, let's move on to the next one, which is electric. And it's the Great Wall Denso Canon EV. So here's a here's a car Canon that we've we've got in this market. Um, but it's boasting 405 kilometers of driving range, which is pretty good for a big pickup. Um, it's not as powerful as some 150 kilowatts, three, pardon me, 300 newton meters. And part of the claim is that it'll support level four autonomy, uh, which is huge. I mean, there's, there are a lot of people out there, I think Audi's making claims about its A8 and uh, level four autonomy uh, capability. But also when you've got out there and um, set up your campsite, it's got vehicle to load so you can charge up whatever you've brought with you or whatever's in the, in the back of it and vehicle-to-vehicle tech so that you can do all of this um, charging jiggery-pokery at the same time. So when it's called the Denso, I think this bit of context might be missing from the story, but when it's called the Denso, is that the electronics manufacturer Denso? I can only imagine so, yeah, which is owned right, by okay. Toyota. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. I, I think this um, you know, area of e- e- EV utes is totally unexplored as yet. Um, and... I know the mission was from the beginning for the Canon because we've been reporting on it. I think we broke the story for Canon in, in Australia when it was first unveiled at a, probably a Chengdu motor show years ago. Yeah. Um, but I know the intention from the beginning was for that platform to support electrification. And this car has been popping up at various motor shows ever since, but this seems to be kind of the production version of it. Um, okay. I think people will be let down a bit by 150 kilowatts and 300 newton meters. They like it doesn't sound like heaps, does it? No, no. But I suppose, and this one is more your urban uh, truck rather mm. than your off-road contender. So maybe that on-road performance is even more of a factor. So for a big vehicle like this to have relatively modest outputs would seem to be a handicap. But to have that kind of range, yeah, I mean that's pretty handy. You got to also in the context of its market, well. though, like. 
you got to wonder about payload as well with 405 kilometers of driving range. Like that's going to be a big battery, right? Like probably 80 kilowatt hours. But we'll end and also fill up the tray. <clears throat> Pardon me. Fill up the tray and how far are you going? Mm. Sorry, Justin, go ahead. I was just going to say in terms of the Chinese market though, like obviously this is catered towards the Chinese market and the outputs of their EVs are relatively modest. You know, they don't necessarily have... Uh, a thirst for high performance like we do in Australia as an example. So, you know, if something like this were to be sold in other markets, then potentially there would be something a bit pokier available. But, you know, to your point, Tom, around range, it's going to be a big battery and it needed an even bigger battery if it was going to be more powerful and you're going to actually, you know, have a payload or tow or whatever because it wouldn't go very far otherwise. Yeah, so it feels like it's kind of in limbo land um, between mm -hmm. having the ability to carry and having a decent range. Absolutely. But at the same time, like we keep talking about, um, you know, the EV future of utes and, you know, how we're going to see hybrid in the coming years and then electric maybe by the end of this decade or something like that. But the reality is it's, it's already happened. It's just happened in other markets and we don't necessarily hear about it all that much. Um, but yeah, that, that Denso one is a great example of what's available in 2021. Yes. I think as well, like that's another interesting thing. One that isn't mentioned in this article is the incoming BYD uh, ute that is will supposedly also be all electric and um, yep. you know, we know BYD's got big expansion plans in Australia too so yes well I mean you think about America progressing with things like the F-150 Lightning um, and GM going down that path as well it's an it's an obvious one or it seems to be so you know we could see that vehicle um, if it's close to production form we could absolutely see it all right now the next one is the business this look it's got the matte black paint it's got the high lift it's got the big rims the big tires the um you know neon fluoro orange highlights and it is the yunliang black bullet edition um, of the gwm cannon so that's that's the base underneath all of this but in terms of the macho looks this one absolutely takes the chocolates um wider stance that hides what Chesto's described as a serious suspension uh, update that's Atlas adaptable dampers that produce another 50 millimetres in front lift, um, supported by new forged control arms um, and twin locking differentials. So it's all uh, serious. It's got a 5.5 tonne recovery winch on it, um, the big LEDs, the whole bit. I, this looks the business. What do you guys make of it? I think it looks absolutely... Phenomenal. I mean, you go and compare it to the uh, Dragon Bullet that we were speaking of earlier, and um, I think there's no doubt which one looks better. Um, it just looks mean, but at the same time, like it's easily identifiable as a as a cannon. Um, but at the same time, obviously taking it to the next level. I mean, just look at those fender flares are absolutely ridiculous. Um, but again, like if something like this were to come to Australia, it would be such a good thing for GWM as a brand because. You know, it's one of those cars that would be on the road and everyone would be looking at it. You just don't miss something like that, particularly in that matte grey or black paintwork. I mean, yeah, yeah, it just looks incredible. Is it where is it where the look of the vehicle kind of overtakes the brand? You know, that there's no consideration or, or reluctance around the brand. It's just a great looking thing. I've got to have it. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. I think it's more about the visuals with this car. I mean, sure enough, if you were to actually stump up your money and, and own it and go off road, then sure, you'd probably enjoy a lot of the upgrades that it has in yeah. terms of making it a more competent performance in that regard. But I think uh, a lot of people, much like they do with Raptor, buy the car purely based on looks with no intention of ever taking it off-road. Um, they want it because it's the best-looking or most aggressive-looking 
uh, option in that particular range. So yeah, 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 unreal. Are we are we at the point now where you know this is something that GWM needs, like a, a proper halo model for people to say, well, this brand is properly on the map now. It's not just yes. you know a Chinese alternative. It's now a mainstream manufacturer that you know, can offer something properly high-end to take some of the shine away from, you know, Ranger Raptor and that sort of thing. I think Absolutely. you're right, Tom. It's clearly a move to build aspiration, you know, into the yeah. into the brand. You might end up buying the cooking version that gets you to the job site. Mm. Um, but but in your dreams, you're putting a couple of motocross bikes in the back and wowing everybody at the nearest trail. You know, when you, when you turn up, it's got that kind of aspirational look and feel to it. And the thing about it as well is, if it were to come to Australia, you consider the positioning of Canon right now and how it undercuts Hilux, Ranger, whatever, right? So if they did bring in this kind of flagship, you know, all of a sudden yep. you've got people thinking, all right, I could spend, um, you know, $80,000 plus on buying a Raptor or I could potentially spend $20,000, $25,000 less and get this Canon equivalent that maybe might not be, I'm guessing, as good to drive, but, mm. you know, you're certainly going to have the visuals, you're going to have most of the kit if you want to use it, and you're going to save yourself a lot of money in the process. Well, you've got and... enough for a couple of dirt bikes, haven't you? Uh, left well, exactly. Over. Awesome. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. And again, this is another one that, um, like, since the inception of uh, Canon, since we first started seeing it all those years ago, it's been at all the same shows as the EV version. So the intention has been there to build something like this, since the beginning and yes. great wall has been very open about the fact that it wants to be seen on that kind of same level as Hiluxes and ranges and things with yes. this truck specifically. So it's interesting to see that this production version finally sort of come yes. into existence. But I think further to the points you raised earlier, Tom, it's a matter of timing, isn't it? You know, you've got to have a certain number of runs on the board before you can start to pile on more, you know, and, and take and take a big step up. Um, with something like this so yeah interesting from that point of view um, all right now the next one is frankly a mouthful it's the Sayak Niu Moang and it looks like it's out in the desert on covert ops it's got the if it was camo that would just be a small step uh, from where we are with this thing it looks menacing um, and it's um, a, you know it's based on the Sayak T90 um, and Chesto alleges that it's ready to tap in that sense of self-expression that's booming in the Chinese youth market. Um, the final version of it is expected to debut at the Beijing show next year, uh, and it's got this uh, two-litre twin-turbo diesel engine. Now we're talking 500 newton metres, and it's got a ZF Auto uh, connected to it, roof-mounted LED lights, off-road rubber, a roll cage, for when things get seriously hairy, winches, tow hooks, cargo boxes, the lot. I reckon it looks incredible. What do you guys think? I, th I think out of the ones we've seen so far, to me, it looks quite odd. It looks very wide, but not particularly yep. tall in terms of the front fascia. It looks kind of stretched out, but maybe it's just yep. the angle of the photo that I'm currently looking at and, and our viewers on YouTube are probably seeing too. But yeah, it's, it's interesting. And the kind of matte like mint green almost yeah. paintwork, yeah. maybe a little duller than that. Uh, gives it, it's it does choice. give it a military look. It does. Desert ops, you know. Desert ops indeed. Yeah, that's Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Sorry, Tom, go ahead. I think, I think a piece of uh, context that's missing for this truck as well is that um, like SAIG is the parent company of uh, MG and LDV as we know it in yes. Australia. So this, yes. this truck 
we don't have the uh, the production version of this truck in Australia yet, but it mm. is sort of a model above the LDV T60. So okay. they have like a yeah. T uh, T90, and uh, they call it a Maxus in in China at the moment. But this yes. is, this looks like the off road version of that. So if you're kind yes. of missing that connection, this could potentially come to Australia as an LDV branded product. If that makes sense. Unreal. I mean. It looks appealing. It looks inviting. I'd love to get in and have a go. And it is attacking that very challenging uh, off-road terrain there in the motor show stand, <laughs> um, showing its huge capabilities. But it's a it's a different look. You're right. Was it you, Justin, talking about how it's like an elongated nose? It yeah. looks like it's been squashed down and stretched to the yeah. side. But it's certainly distinctive. And it has the Euro-style massive grill um, mm. that is a, a bit of a signature as well. And the the properly power, like more powerful diesel as well, I think will be a selling point for this truck. I think we know that engine is is meant to be coming to Australia, or we, we can right. at least speculate that it will um, yep. in the the next weeks away. Yeah, the next shoveling of um, LDV products our way. Um, what was that, Justin? How far away? Uh, my understanding is is weeks, if not months away. Oh, okay. semiconductors right. and COVID and all those other challenges don't stop it. It'll be in Australia very, very soon as part of the facelifted T60 range. Amazing. Okay. And so the facelifted T60 range, um, you might know this, Justin, will that yep. take on the, the T90 look? Yep. It's basically it Australia's China. T90, yeah. Okay, got To it. my eye, it looks the same. I don't, I don't know if under the skin there are any difference, but uh, they're certainly visually identical. The interior of the Australian one is different. Right. Um, to the T90. We get the older style of interior with a few new bits, but um, other than that, yeah, the main thing, the engine, that twin-turbo two-litre diesel, um, yeah, it's coming. Well, it probably greases the path for this one then that we're talking about. It makes it Absolutely. easier to, to think about bringing it here. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Considering the connection, like Tom said, with T90 and T60 already. Yep. Writings on the wall, they could do it. It's just a matter of um, whether they do. Fantastic. All right. Well, look, the fifth and final one has got, for mine, it's got Crafty's name written all over it. It's got the, <laughs> it's got the awning. It's got the, you know, it's got the tent on the, on the roof, but it's the Jangling Yoohoo seven pickup and it's the fishing edition <laughs> um and Chester says it's called the fishing edition for a reason because it's got bespoke storage for your fishing gear including a place to put live fish so it's like your tank on your boat but it's in your in your truck um as well spotlights for night fishing and what have you and then when you're tired of fishing or just tired full stop uh the roof of the truck you'll find a tent there's a fridge an awning a washing pool um, a gas stove, a guest area, a guest area, um, and roof-mounted solar panels uh, to keep your car equipment and, and the equipment topped up. It looks very functional at the back there, very squared off, but very accommodating at the same time. Is Almost this... redefining the term motorhome, right? It's incredible the amount. I mean, guest area. A guest area. It's fantastic. My suspicion is the guest area is underneath the awning. <laughs> yeah, probably. Could be. <laughs> Hopefully not underneath the car. <laughs> yeah, the guest area is the front. You don't like your guests, maybe the front passenger seat reclined. That's the <laughs> yeah, that's that. the guest area. Yeah, exactly. No, sorry, Tom, you were going to say something. So, is this an untapped market? Do we think because we've seen the success of prepackaged, you know, off-road things with you, you know, as we've already mentioned, Ranger Raptor and, and these kinds of things that are proving very popular. Yeah. But what about appealing to that crowd that wants 
a, a pre-made camper all covered by warranty. And, you know, we've seen Volkswagen touch on it with um, some of their van-based campers that totally you know, come yeah. all pre-prepared, all this sort of stuff. And and we know that there's kind of this kind of uh, grey nomad, you know, community yep. that, that would probably lap something like this up. So, you know, is this something that's untapped in Australia? Totally. I mean, a unique selling part is the guest area no one else has that no. <laughs> <laughs> that that's that's new but yeah totally i mean volkswagen you're right are onto it um and they're starting to cut the grass of the people who in the aftermarket have been modifying their vehicles for yonks um and saying well why, why can't we do it ourselves and, and make a bit of coin before it gets out to those people this one and and as we've said ad nauseum um, because of recent lockdowns, people haven't been going internationally. They've been spending all their money on domestic holidays, and that looks like it'll be a bigger option for a lot of people in Australia very shortly. Yeah, I would have thought it's a massive market. So and you this, never know. This truck here, just uh, again to give people who uh, aren't familiar with it a little bit of context, we did used to have the prior version of this truck in Australia for a brief period, uh, and we knew it as the J, uh, JMC Vegas so really yeah that one passed me by it was roughly roughly when tom uh would have been a while ago now it didn't last very long okay and, and there's <laughs> uh, there's only a handful it's they're actually really rare to spot them around but there's a few okay do you know tom where jiangling sits in the kind of um brand kind of web of ownership and what have you do you have any clues on that score um well, just a cursory browse right now as we speak. Uh, it says it seems to belong to itself, so it's not it's not owned by you know one of the bigger players like Sega or anything. From what I can tell, just on my okay. little cursory so browse the, right now. So I'd say the chances of it getting um, an international market are relatively slim. Yeah, it seems it seems odd that we, we we've had the Vegas before now. Just looking at it, that it might have been one of those sort of um, oh Ford had an interest in it once. Maybe that was a relation. I don't know. Okay. All right. How weird. We're getting into the, the depths of it now. So, <laughs> All right. Well, look, there are the five. I reckon, I don't know about you guys, but out of each of those, there are a couple that look like really potential propositions for this market. Mm-hmm. That uh, the SAAC, um, given that, as you were saying, Justin, we're getting closer and closer to that spec anyway. Something like that could come in without too much drama. Mm-hmm. Um, a Black Bullet edition um, of a Canon. Um, yeah, so they're, they're, they're dressed up show cars for sure, but they have potential for this market, no doubt. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I've got my fingers crossed for the Black Bullet personally. Okay, <laughs> very good. Yes, and the Ute. Um, the, <laughs> <laughs> let's move on. Let's move on to our garage. And as I mentioned um, at the top, we're for the last time going to visit the darker corners of the, uh, the Cars Guide garage and go back to some particularly memorable cars, drives, locations, people um, that have stuck in our mind because we haven't been doing a lot of uh, driving of cars, but happily uh, we are starting to now. So with fingers crossed, this will be the the last time we go around with this, but Justin, lead us off. And it's nothing dramatic. It's just a near death experience in Morocco. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, I cast my mind back to November, 2018 and uh, fortunate enough to go to Morocco with Nissan was an LCV trip. So we were driving a bunch of LCVs that we don't get in Australia. Um, so the Titan being the probably one of most interests, that's the full-size pickup F-150 yeah. 
ran 1500, et cetera, uh, competitor. We still don't have it in Australia three years mm. later. But, um, was it was the ambition at, the at that point that it might come to Australia? Yeah, I think yeah. the point of that trip was, um, you know, they were seriously considering a right-hand drive conversion program like Ram 1500, like Silverado now as well. Um, so that was seriously on the cards. It obviously hasn't happened since, but it might still happen. So who knows? We can keep our fingers crossed. But uh, three years later, we're uh, no closer to that happening. Um, and the other model that we drove, or one of the other models that we drove that was of interest is the Terra, which of course is the SUV version of the Navara um, that's sold in some uh, markets in Asia. Um, yeah. Again, we still don't get it in Australia because it's not available with the right engine and it doesn't have the right safety specs. So um, we found that out at the time, um, but we still had that opportunity to drive it because again, there was a possibility that they might've been able to change the spec, but three years yep. later, Terra is no further for Australia. So we, it's um, Nissan's Fortuna. Basically, yeah, Nissan's yeah. Fortuna. Sorry, yeah, Everest, okay. Fortuna, Pajero Sport. Um, yeah. yeah, all those kind of ladder frame uh, based SUVs or ute based SUVs. That's where yeah. it's uh, competed against. And also we got to drive the Navara AT32 by Arctic Trucks. So oh, we hear wow. quite a bit about Arctic Trucks and their uh, souped up European focused uh, pickups and utes and what have you. Um, and so that was the first time I'd driven an Arctic Trucks uh, model and again at that point in time there was a good chance that something like that was going to come to Australia and of course that ended up being the Warrior um, so yep. I think the Warrior program was somewhat inspired by uh, the good work of Arctic Trucks in Europe so um, that was an early preview of sorts even though not obviously the Warrior itself but something along the lines of that anyway yes point being we got to sample all those things none of them have actually come to Australia but <laughs> yes um we we did a tour of uh, Morocco for five days uh, going in and out of these cars and, and you know that was incredible in seems of seeing the sights and all that kind of stuff but I suppose the point of my story is the near-death experience uh, which happened in the Sahara so <laughs> we got to the desert and uh, I was in the Titan and I was uh, the passenger at this point in time. And another Australian uh, motoring journalist who will remain nameless was in the driver's seat. Uh, he's a dead set legend. So this, this, is a, this has a good end, I promise. Um, but the program manager for Titan, the guy who was responsible for basically uh, making it come into existence, was sitting in the uh, back seat uh, having a chat with us as we're going across the sand dunes. And, and beforehand, we'd been given very strict instructions from these Spanish uh, driving instructors around how to tackle the dunes and what to do and what not to do, because there were some people, uh, including an unnamed, uh, let's call them an influencer, who was on the trip. And uh, that influencer was driving by themselves. And uh, we uh, found ourselves in the vehicle behind them, uh, unfortunately. And it was a case of going over the dunes and basically just following what the person does in front of you and hope that they follow the person in front of them, in front of them until you, obviously the driving instructors were at the front. So we were in a convoy, just basically yep. stick to the rules and, and you know, do as, do as you topped. Um, unfortunately, the person in front of us didn't do that. <laughs> so they, they were uh, challenged and had lost sight of the car in front. And decided to pick their own course. Now, of course, we couldn't see any further because we were going over these dunes. So we just trusted that they were doing the right thing slash, uh, you know, could see what was meant to be going on. Anyway, they decided to attack one of the dunes at an angle, which is a big no-no. Um, because once they came over the other side, you can't drive straight down safely, right? And so... They disappeared off the edge of this dune and um, whatever, that's fine. And so we knew it was our turn. But then 
uh, the person who was driving, uh, the other motoring journalist, uh, thankfully was quick thinking because as soon as we hit the top of the dune and looked down, we realized it was a vertical drop basically. Wow. Almost 90 degrees wow. going straight down at this point. Um, and the guy that was driving, very experienced, thankfully off-roading. Uh, so he knew what to do. He tried to straighten us up as, as best we could um, at the absolute last second, but it was a straight drop <gasps> for what felt like a lifetime at the time. But all the gear that was in the car that was loose flew, hit us in the back of the head, hit the wow. windshield and everything because we were just coming down and then we dropped. Thankfully, he managed to... Uh, get us on the front tires and then the rear came down eventually as well. Um, no one was hurt. No one was injured in our car. Um, so we were all fine other than being a bit shaken up and, and stuff everywhere. But it was that um, moment where, you know, you're on, it's almost like you're on Space Mountain, you know, you're Holy facing moly. that vertical drop and you're like, oh, well, just you can't do anything at this point, particularly again, as a passenger, as the program manager was a passenger in the back as well. You just got to cross your fingers. What, what, what happened to the person in front of you? Somehow he managed to stick the landing because I think the the uh, point at which he went down was not as steep as ours. Oh. So I think he had a pretty rough landing. Again, we didn't see it, um, but certainly after the facts, we heard about it. Um, but yeah, I think his landing was actually better than ours or softer than ours, I should say, right. um, because it wasn't nearly as steep. So um, again, I, I think it was fairly rough, but definitely not as rough as ours. We were, you know, airborne and hoping for the best oh. nose down at that point in time. But the really funny part of the story is obviously we survived. So that's great. Um, but oh, uh, now you've ruined the ending. Up. Sorry. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. We all died. No. Um, we then met up with the uh, rest of the convoy who were waiting for us because, again, we were the last car. And the driving instructor was there, um, a Spanish guy. I forget what his name was. But anyway, the point being, the convoy was so far ahead of us that they'd all stopped and they got to watch the whole thing. Oh, wow. And so they watched us come up and apparently everyone had their like hands in their faces just like, oh, my God. And anyway, we came down. It was fine. But for a moment, they all thought that, you know, it was about to be a pretty bad situation. Anyway, we get out of the cars and everyone's like, you guys okay, whatever. And then the Spanish instructor comes up and he's yelling at us. He goes, who was driving? Who was driving? And the bloke who was driving pointed at me and said he was driving, jokingly. <laughs> and then and then the Spanish instructor comes up to me. He goes, you were driving? And I, and I just didn't say anything because I was still kind of in shock. And he goes, excellent job. Fantastic. Aww. You straightened it up at the top. You managed to save yourselves in the end. Great job. And then all of a sudden, the other bloke's like, actually, no, it was me. It was me, sir. I was the one that was driving. Uh, wow. Was the, was the thing still drivable then? It wasn't. It, it there was no wasn't. damage to them. It ate a lot of sand, obviously, uh, in the course of the day, let alone that particular yeah. incident. But yeah. um, no, to, to my knowledge, I don't think anything was damaged um, per se. Like I said, a lot of loose stuff in the car came up to the front. I don't think the windshield was cracked or anything like that. So remarkably, like I said, the guy that was driving managed to, you know, get the best possible landing. It was rough. And like I said, we were airborne nose down, but um, we still managed to stick wow. the landing relatively yep. speaking. But um, yeah, like I yep. said, in the moment, you're like, oh God, how's this going to go? But then after the fact, you couldn't help but laugh. Amazing. Amazing. I'm very glad that you're with us, uh, Justin. That's great. great to I be had here. no idea that that, that, that that had taken place. Uh, that's extraordinary. I was wondering, whilst you were talking, I was thinking of a film called Ice Cold in Alex. It's a 1950s film with John Mills and they're trying to get across this, oh, I think it's the Sahara, um, in a Land Rover and they've got a double agent who turns out, they do, can they trust this person? But they all have to survive, so they have to work as a team. 
And there's one scene where to get up a particular dune in their Land Rover, um, it's petrol powered, obviously, because they take the plugs out, reverse it up to the dune, um, cause it's put it in reverse and then hand crank it up the dune um, to, to actually work the gears up the dune. And they slip right near the top and just watch it kind of go all the way back down. And the, the ice cold in Alex is about him constantly dreaming of the beer that he's going to drink in Alex. And the final <laughs> scene is this beer on the bar with a little rivulet of, of um, you know, condensation coming down the glass anyway. That's, uh, that is an amazing story. Tom, you're going to have to top that now um, and tell us about your drive in a Mercedes-Benz product. I, I, I will in a sec, but just uh, like on, on Justin's story, I, I do know one of, the, one of the most terrifying and difficult things about uh, driving up dunes is the fact that you can't let off the accelerator at the top, even though it looks like you're going to just drive straight into the abyss. You have no idea necessarily yep. what's on the other side. If you let off the accelerator, you're going to get very bulky at the top. Exactly. So you have to just commit. It's yeah. wild. That was so one of the I, things that were really pointing to uh, pointing uh, to us beforehand is, you know, whatever you do, just keep driving. And again, the guy that was, was driving with us obviously knew that because he'd done plenty of dunes in his lifetime. Right. So he kept doing it. It was all about that last minute steering input, which again is something they tell you not to do. Don't really touch the steering wheel, you know, try and keep it as straight as possible and as little work on the steering wheel as possible. And um, yeah, keep your foot on the gas. But <laughs> yeah, that was something. Yeah, can't really top that story as mine didn't really have a uh, near-death experience, although it could have um, <laughs> at, at several points. Um, but no, uh, so it was probably probably the most incredible road I've ever, ever driven in my life before. And it was part of a, a Mercedes-Benz thing where we got to preview the um, the GLE 60, uh, no, 53. That's yep. the one with these uh, fancy... Inline engine? Hybridised inline engine. Yep. Um, uh, but it's still, it's still quick enough, you know, uh, as an enthusiast, we all wish it could have been in a C63 or something, you know, something a bit lower, but, um, this road goes from, uh, the airport at Innsbruck in the Austrian Alps and works its way all the way up to the Timmels Josh pass. And that's the point at the Alps where Italy and Austria meet. So it's the very, the very border, essentially yeah. the end of the road in Austria. And people and, in weird places in Germany speak Italian and people in Italy speak German and some, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it gets it does get a bit weird up there because there's yeah. like towns that have weirdly Italian names or vice versa on either side of the border and the signs are in all sorts of different languages, uh, the, you know, the closer you get. But the road itself was absolutely breathtaking. And I, I'm a fan of kind of alpine climate so to go up there and see the mountainscape and everything and and the higher you got the elevation change is so much that when you're at the top there's kind of this almost one story high mountain of snow on either side of the road yep yeah and there's no obviously when you're up there there's no margin for error either because you're going straight into a, a sheer wall of ice and then the road is actually remarkably narrow you'd think you know for some for a place in in europe that has relatively good infrastructure they, they do something about the width of the road but um so there's there's very little margin for error you're driving this giant suv there was there was a sort of a, t a terrifying element to that but also as you work your way down, you sort of go down past uh, Solden, which is one of those famous ski towns along that road. It starts to, the snow starts to disappear and then you're in this like lush farmland. It's bizarre, all in one road. 
um, and you work your way down the bottom and there's no snow at all, uh, even um, sort of going into winter when we were there. So um, it was kind of this incredible experience where you drive through multiple seasons in, in yes. one setting. That altitude will do it for you, yeah? Yeah, that's right. And uh, I was, you know, I was very jealous because I do love skiing and you were driving past these iconic ski mountains the whole time. And, you know, you're on a very set schedule, so there's no time to stop and hire a set of skis and get out. But um, it was incredibly enjoyable regardless. And at the top there at Timmel's Josh, there is a historic motorcycle museum, yep. um, which has all these, uh, some of the motorcycles, some of which are you know, nearly the only example in the world. And there's stuff that dates back to, you know, the Second World War and, and before. And sadly, that museum burnt down, I think, last year or the year before. So uh, I was quite glad You're I got kidding. to have a gaze at it. Yeah. So I'd imagine the contents didn't fare too well then. No, no. I think uh, significant things were lost. Like wow. I, uh, there was a lot of recoverable stuff, they said. But yeah, the, the building itself was a goner. So wow. I saw some pictures. It was pretty pretty full on. I just thought, wow, I was there not that long ago. Oh, wow. Yes. So um, what you're saying is you set fire to the building before you left. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, if I, I can't the, see it, nobody can. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I shouldn't have left that power board plugged in. It wasn't <laughs> <much>. um, <laughs> That, that, that puts me in mind of a story told to me by one of our colleagues. Uh, they were on a mountain pass and it was quite snowy and there was a bit of ice and snow on the road. And they'd been, the two guys, are, one's driving, chat, 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 chat. And then it all went a bit quiet until the person in the passenger seat just said, you got this? <laughs> and unbeknownst to him, for about a minute and a half, but there were beads of perspiration coming down for it. He's just battling, trying to break the thing, get it going and, They'd been sailing down the road and they, uh, they survived that, but he was um, very quietly stressing about whether or not they were going to actually make it. I've got to say that moment where, you know, there's potentially about to be a massive crash happen. It does last forever. I was thinking about that <laughs> when right. you were talking about your um, fall that was probably mm. only like a second or something. Yeah. Just yes. as it, it felt like an eternity when you were there. What, I thought it was in slow motion. What were the yeah, first right. words? What were the first words spoken, Justin? Like during nothing during the fall, I presume, or when you landed, who said what first? Do you recall? Uh, I think at the top when the driver uh, realised what was happening, I think he uh, may have uh, <laughs> expletive deleted. He yes, he said something, uh, and then we dropped. And then I think it was just one of those moments afterwards where we just all looked at each other and then we just had to laugh because it was funny, you know? Um, yes, there were several expletives afterwards, mainly uh, directed towards the vehicle in front driven front. by the influencer. Wow. Uh, but uh, yeah, not too many words I could utter on this podcast. <laughs> uh, hello, Australia. There, there was, uh, I had a, a funny, funny moment uh, in on an Azuzu thing where um, there was a, a beach driving segment to a, a, an off-road activity we were doing. And it was at the end of the day and everyone was, was quite, quite tired. And, and part of this beach thing was you, you had to drive over these little water crossings that were sort of along the way across the beach. And it, it was right at the end of the day, everyone was exhausted. We'd been off-roading all day. And I was just driving along and I wasn't really following in the, in the sand tracks of the truck in front. And one of these little crossings is coming up and I didn't think anything of it. So I was going at, at quite a velocity. And I came off and it turned out that this um, creek had, had made itself a little rivet out of the sand. And so the, the truck must have been in the air for 
half a yeah. second before nice. I met the crowd again and woke up everyone who was asleep in the nice truck because everyone was exhausted, but it was quite funny. Nothing about it, like a bit of airtime, yeah, to, uh, <laughs> to wake you up. Um, I, I want to finish off with a car that, that it's well known, um, but it was the first one where I could really feel the technology in the car doing its thing around me, but not in a ham-fisted way, in a very sophisticated way. It's not as if you felt this or that. You just knew that the car was doing its thing. And that's the Skyline uh, GTR R32. So when that arrived in Australia, uh, eventually, I think it was 1990, um, there were 100 of them that came in batches to Australia. It was a big call from, from this in Australia. They got a bit greedy on the price, $110,000 in 1990 for one of those. Um, but it was incredible. It was a real game changer for Nissan and an extraordinary car to drive. That 2.6 litre twin turbo was, was a breakthrough and they stuck with it for so long. Um, it had the all-wheel drive system, very sophisticated all-wheel drive, four-wheel steering. Um, and that's what I mean about these systems, just working with you and around you, sometimes to save you, um, sometimes to enhance what you're doing. Um, it was kind of like having a drift mode without drift mode. You just knew that you could do things in that car uh, that you wouldn't be capable of in other cars. It was flattering you, turned you into a, into a bit of a hero. Um, and, you know, it was part of that gentleman's agreement where various Japanese manufacturers were all quoting 206 kilowatts um, as the output for their car. Um, allegedly, it's closer to 240, 250. So, you know, 335 odd horsepower in a car weighing about 1,400 kilos. And we, when I was at uh, Motor Magazine, I remember we managed to get a sub five second, zero to 100 kilometer time out of it on the apron at the Thunderdome in Calder because the hot mix was very good for acceleration testing, um, we discovered. Um, and that was two seconds faster than a, a VL um, Commodore Walkinshaw Batmobile um, Group A. Like that's, that's a lot. And so for that time, it was a really fast car I remember the front seats as being brilliant. Um, I remember going up with Nissan on a trip to Japan and we went to Fuji Speedway and the car park was just, all you could see was R32 uh, GTRs and some 180SXs. It was the car of the moment. And of course, you know, Gibson Motorsport and, and uh, Jim Richards and Mark Scaife and um, all of that. And we at Motor Magazine at that time did various tests with it. Um, we put it up against a Mitsubishi uh, 3000 GT, an FDRX7 and a 300ZX. That was an epic test in rural New South Wales. And talking about flying, I got one fully airborne, like full droop on all the wheels off this little uh, gully, which was quite exciting. Uh, we did another where we were looking forward to the next year's um, touring cars, main touring car proponents. So we had a Privately owned from Queensland Sierra RS500 um, Ford. We had an A70 Super Turbo um, and the Batmobile uh, VL Walkinshaw Group A. And look, the sad thing is that because Nissan got a bit greedy with the price, they couldn't give them away at the end. They just had a lot hanging around in dealer stock. Um, Nissan subsequently, key people at Nissan said they should have priced it at about 85 and it would have been a big success. But 110, it was too much for people to bite off. They weren't ready to spend that on a Nissan. So the first few were snapped up, but then they struggled with the last ones. And now um, they're pulling more than 85. They're, they're, uh, they are about a $100,000 car, a well-kept uh, I was about to say, as you were um, telling that story, I've literally just plugged in uh, Skyline R32s into um, some 
classified sites and they do now go for between 85 and $160,000 depending on there the condition. So I just, it was such that the steering wheel was beautiful. The wheel was beautiful. All the ergonomics was so simple um, and so fast. It felt really fast at that stage, but capable. You know, you knew that you were in a car that was going to help you out and, and work with you in a very sophisticated way. And it stuck in my mind. I had an opportunity to drive the R35, uh, R33, even though it didn't come to Australia. Um, Nissan brought a couple out just for evaluation purposes. And it was a little bit bigger, a little bit heavier. It wasn't quite as nimble. It was, it was fantastic. But the R32, there's something about it that's just um, stuck in my mind because it was such a breakthrough car at that time. I think so it's aging really well as well. Like oh, I'm just looking at pictures of it now. Great. Yeah, it's still looks great. Like, like such balance in its, oh, in its Beautifully proportioned and really nicely. I think the, the ones that came to Australia, there were different colours. Um, you had that very rich red, uh, like a mulberry kind of colour, uh, silver and black. So they're in pretty equal batches of colour. And it's the locally delivered ones that had a few extra bits and pieces to meet ADRs. So you had to have a high mount tether for child seats. They put a different aerial on it, a few few bibs and bobs, but um, I think a lot of private imports have made it to this market, JDM mm -hmm. um, imports, but uh, the Aussie ones are the ones that get the, the big bucks apparently. A couple so, of years ago, I was fortunate enough at the GTR 40th anniversary launch to drive the R32, the R33, the R34, and obviously we were there for the launch of an R35 fine. on the same yeah. day. Yeah, yeah, great. Uh, which was cool. So the 32, the 33, and the 34 are all owner's cars, um, people that belong to the GTR owner's club, I assume. Um, so they were their babies and they were obviously very excited to let the journos drive them, believe it or not. Um, right. Obviously, right. you know, I don't think we ever went over 60 Ks an hour on this tight little track that we were on. Yeah. Um, and we certainly babied them along because um, they were in varying states of uh, perfection, uh, let's say. Uh, gotcha. So some gotcha. of them needed a little bit more love. But um, yeah, that was an incredible day to be able to sample that entire series, you know, within a few that's hours unreal. at the same time and, and compare them all by going back to back to back to back. So I remember Toyota did, that for a, Toyota did that at a Corolla launch and they had everything from KE10 right through mm. to the current Corolla and you could back to back it. But it's funny you talk about speed in the GTR. One of the mods for Australia as well was a different speedo because in Japan, the speedo went to 180 kmh. And I think we got a 260 or something like that. It was just Japan was this um, kind of, no, no, nothing to see here. It's 206 kilowatts and 180 on the speed up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, whereas reality was just, just a little bit different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course. No, so <laughs> unreal car, really, really memorable car, um, mm. special. So let's kick in to a bit of feedback um, from last week, which was, of course, forget Holden and Ford. Australia will make cars, Utes, vans and SUVs again, which is a story that's gone off this week, Justin. Um, yes. You know, you you guys, the whole news team. It's been a, a pretty uh, pretty big story, and um, it was again, it was a Chester story, wasn't it? And uh, yeah. Chester wrote this one, and he was looking at five different um, avenues to local production, two of which we're well well familiar with, being Premcar and the Walkinshaw Group. Um, Premcar working with Nissan currently, Walkinshaw working with Volkswagen, um, and GMSV um, being wrapped up in that whole thing. The three that interested me um, were uh, new Nextport, uh, BYD, uh, and they're going to be setting up, it looks like, a production facility in the Southern Highlands in New South Wales. Um, Ace EV Group, which is South Australia, and they're already taking orders on their, their cute little commercials of, of the Ute 
YEWT and the, and the cargo and the urban, and they've got this X1 transformer and the H2X Global with the, the Warrego, where we heard a lot of noise about them 12 months ago, or maybe more, a couple of years ago, um, a fuel cell using the Ranger T6 platform. And they're going to have a launch, I think, Justin, and the Gold Coast. We're now in October, so next month. Um, and it's a, it's a pricey vehicle, so we'll see where they go. But we, we had a lot of feedback. And Bill Catapotis, he firmly believes that Australians, he says Australians are entrepreneurial and technically gifted enough to make things others will want. Uh, not the numbers we saw in the past, but smaller, nimbler organisations will spring up. Fingers crossed for Aussie ingenuity. I think that sums it up. It's, it's kind of that story, isn't it? It's finding a niche and, and not relying on the big numbers and not trying to compete with the big international brands, but doing something special that, that suits the local conditions. Well, you just look at the success of Walkinshaw, like you said, JC, with uh, Volkswagen to a lesser extent, but certainly Ram. I mean, yeah, Ram, of uh, course. And, and, and now Silverado as well. But, you know, yes. those full size pickups that aren't available in right hand drive, converting them using the skills that they have uh, to do that on a smaller scale, but still a significant enough scale. And we're talking about vehicles that, you know, typically cost in excess of six figures comfortably. So, you know, they're not a, a small transactional price. So they certainly are getting their bang for their buck, so to say. And yes. I think um, the uh, there was a quote from a representative at H2X who was saying, you know, they've got similar living conditions and wages in South Korea now, yet they have this booming car industry. There's no reason why we can't do it here and i know that you know there's a in reality there's a couple of caveats to that like you know korea has this big established manufacturing presence yeah. for vehicles as it is you know, bigger than ours ever was um yes. and they have their own problems with um uh industrial actions going on at the moment in almost every factory in korea so um, yeah you know, it's almost it's like social and industrial growing pains i know that sounds very condescending <laughs> but it's you know having come from uh, a, a political system that caused people to work often seven days a week, you know, and, and barely had any time off for relatively low wages. The standard of living in South Korea has gone through the roof and people are demanding a better standard of life. Uh, it's just those kinds of issues cropping up on a consistent basis. Um, now, in agreement with Bill is Grudlin74. This is great podcast, guys. Thank you, Grudlin. Um, Thinks when Aussies fettle products, we're at our engineering best. Looking forward to the BYD Tang and the Transformer van Ute. Uh, again, EVs for the city, hydrogen for the country. I think he's pretty right. Bertie, Bertie is just very upfront in saying, I'd like to be on the podcast. So thanks, Bertie. We'll, we'll take that on board. Uh, he says the biggest opportunities for Australia are not in vehicles being manufactured, but components. Uh, value adding of resources that go into batteries and other EV technologies. And it put me in mind of the fact that Nissan Casting um, in Dandenong has been doing exactly that forever and a day. And they're still, despite pandemic kind of restriction and, and uh, semiconductor um, restrictions, they're still working away on mm. parts for the Leaf. Uh, I think they do stuff for Navara, um, mm. different castings and parts. So, yeah, I, I think he's got a point, yeah. And the good news with the casting plan as well is it's about to seriously ramp up again because uh, they may or may not have been tapped to do uh, manufacture parts for the e-power powertrains that we're going to see in Qashqai, X-Trail, et cetera. Um, I think they already do some components for the Note uh, that's sold in Japan. Right, yes. Uh, that we don't see here, but in particular X-Trail and, and Qashqai being, you know, high volume models that are going to be available with the e-power 
um, hybrid powertrain, they're going to be um, supplying parts out of Dandenong for those cars, uh, which yeah. is awesome news. Which which flies in the face of all those arguments around the tyranny of distance. You know, we're too far away, and you know our cost of labour is very high. For, for somehow, um, Nissan's found a way to make it work um, for, mm. for their organisation. So Birdie's onto something, I reckon. Um, Absolutely. Now, now um, let's get on to Sukhoi Romantic. He makes an interesting point. He reckons car manufacturers need to have plans to pivot away from dual cab use. Um, a change in interest rates or tax rules could actually kill that market. Uh, and he says, watch tradies try to get out of their $60,000 leases. Many will have financed to the hilt. Make hay while the sun shines, but by all, me by all means, but please be ready to pivot. And Spag Bowls and Parma Cheese, the evocatively named Spag Bowls and, pa and Parma Cheese, says, what a boring time we live in when a tradie car is seen as a cool family car. Mm. But I suppose the... I, I hear what he's saying. There's almost a generation of car buyers and drivers that have grown up with Utes being the aspirational car, um, that it's grown out of that, that trading mold and into a, a broader, more aspirational thing. But do you, do you, what do you think, Justin? Is there a chance that if financial conditions change, the Ute might fall out of favour or is it firmly established? I think it's, it's hard to see it changing uh, in the interim. I mean, you're always going to have tradies that actually you know use a ute for its intended purpose rather than you know primarily as a family car and, and we know there are a number of dual cab ute owners that aren't tradies or people that would even use the tub at all um you yes. know to them it's a fashion accessory there's nothing wrong with that if that's your yeah. thing there's um, nothing wrong with I, having a pristine tub on the back of you exactly but i suppose the thing about the dual cab ute in particular is it really is that kind of do it all car right you know you can tow um you can have a payload um maybe not as big as you can in a single cab but you know you can still have a payload um and then you can have passengers so you yes. know it really does it all so for a lot of people um, that is the aspirational family car because depending on what they do lifestyle-wise or for work or how many kids they have, it might be the perfect vehicle for them. But you know, it, you'd think it'd be hard to see the Ute just disappearing or even if it does pivot, you're still going to have tradies that need Utes. So yeah. maybe the dual cab might not be as big of a focus if um, the financial situation changes. But well, I, I, as well, we sit here now, I just can't see it changing We had um, soon. A family uh, reviewer and expert, Nadal, recently looking mm. at the D-Max and BT-50 twins and uh, twins under the skin. And she was making the point that as a family car, the tray, even on a dual cab, is huge, but impractical. Because mm. if you're just putting family stuff in the back there, it's going to skid around. It's hard to get it, mm. get it in there, get it out, all that. So the family thing, unless you make some sneaky modifications to make it easier to make use of that thing and you have the hard tonneau and and yeah. all of that, it, it's not exactly ideal. No, you're 100% right. You need to have some sort of tub liner so, you know, you know, things aren't rolling around and, like you said, a hard tonneau or a roller cover or whatever it is yeah. to make it work. But even so, like, that shape doesn't necessarily work either. I mean, it is a tub. If you've got something taller that's going to stay in there for a bit and you need to cover it, you yeah. know, you've only got so much height to play with. Um, and you know, again, you might not be comfortable going around without a cover on it, um, or tying things down if you need to, um, depending on how you use it, which is why you should probably just buy a large SUV. That's a story for another day. <laughs> That's right. Now, um, next up, Stendex Stretcher says the introduction of Nextport has to be a good thing for this country. Maybe we could build submarines next, which is a uh, provocative statement, but um. <laughs> 
somehow we'll get that job, job done, I'm sure. Now, Fat Man Overlanding, which is an incredible mental picture, Fat Man Overlanding, the Transformer vehicle, which is the Ace EV X1. If history is any guide, he doesn't see this type of car working. Um, doubts there would be many people that would actually change its body configuration. And I, I reckon that's a really fair call. The example he recalls is the Nissan Exa. Now, I've got to say, we're talking 1980s for that car, um, probably earlier rather than later 80s. Um, went from coupe to shooting brake. And, and I went back and it was called the Sportback. So it was configurable such that you could take the Targa roof bit out of the middle. You could take the back section off. So you had almost like a cabriolet or you could put this sport back thing on, which turned it into, yeah, what amounted to a shooting brake. And he says, how many owners bought it? Um, and most utes could do that. You can have your canopy on the top of the ute and take it off or put it on, but they never shift. I reckon that's really interesting. And Hammer Rock said, He'd never seen a Nissan Exa in the flesh in Australia, even in its heyday, with that shooting brake back end. And maybe it was decades ahead of its time. And mm -hmm. who knows? But I think that's a really valid point that it's hard to get beyond that inertia where, where people just, oh, I don't want to change it. It'll stay that way for forever and a day. Well, I guess the thing about the X1 Transformer is it really is just a modular platform that they're selling, right? You know, you've, we've seen the van version of it where it's got that top on it um and then there's a possibility of a use there's like like different body styles you could potentially yeah. have but i think the thing that's potentially holding that back um which i'm sure was discussed discussed at length last week you know is the range isn't necessarily mm. amazing which mm. means you know you're going to have restrictions around payload as well so it's going to make the range even less if you did were were hauling something or whatever so um yeah. it really is that kind of city solution rather than you know something you'd see in the country, I guess, is what I'm trying to and say. And the, the change over time is quoted as 15 minutes between different body configurations. And I'd argue yeah. that's about 14 minutes too long. You know, <laughs> people would probably just want it to be more or less instantaneous. Yeah, exactly. It's just, uh, it's I an interesting concept, but I don't know. I think that range thing is a big deal, right, for commercial mm. vehicles, because, you know, what right now we're seeing battery electric commercial vehicles, whether it's something like the Renault, Kangoo ZE, I think that's what it's called. Um, or, you know, even I think Fuso, um, they're, they're, they're the first ones to market with a light duty uh, electric battery electric truck. But both of them have about 100 Ks of range, um, you know, once you've put something in it. So that's going to be a problem. I think in Australia, you know, to be comfortable with our current infrastructure, with the distances between our cities, you need at least 300 kilometers of range. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's kind of what, you know, when I drive an EV, if I, if I see 300 plus on the dash, I'm pretty comfy, you know, I'm thinking, okay, I don't need to charge this up for a while. I can make it to the next city down, um, pretty comfortably. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's kind of, that, that's kind of, I think the, the, the tilting point for, you know, EVs in Australia, you, you kind of need that, that much range. And so the challenge is for, for commercial vehicles, what do you do? And mm -hmm. I think that's what's interesting about these these hydrogen vehicles. I think I think there was a comment, more comments to do with hydrogen vehicles in there as well. Yeah. Um, because they have a few benefits that aren't just, you know, you can have a like a ridiculous amount of range with them. We did the um, hydrogen range test together, and they actually outperformed our expectations and were able to travel longer than their quoted range by quite yep. a margin um, yeah. on a single yeah. tank of hydrogen that's really light. So yep. you know that single tank of hydrogen gave us. 660 plus k's per car and 
it only weighs six kilos once it's yeah that's it it's It's magic you know look it's Um, interesting you you mentioned that tom because our old mate de cook um says he's keeping his fingers crossed for green hydrogen production great to move on from coal directly to sustainable renewable energy source i suppose that's dependent on how the hydrogen's produced as he says it should be green um so you're using wind or solar or or wave or whatever energy to produce the hydrogen in the first place um, but he says, speaking of ease of recharge, are you aware of any plans to make hybrid hydrogen cars with a battery for 100 kilometres of city driving, rechargeable at home, and a hydrogen tank for longer journeys? Have, have you come across anything that meets that description, Tom? I think Mercedes experimented with something like that. I'm pretty sure it was Mercedes. Don't quote me on this just yet because um, I'll need to um, get, get um, some research into it. But I'm pretty sure Mercedes did a plug-in fuel cell electric vehicle Unreal. concept. And the idea was exactly as stated, you can charge it up to have your, it was literally a plug-in hybrid drivetrain, but instead of an engine, it had a, had a hydrogen. Unreal. It, it seems like a very interesting concept to me. So uh, yeah. that's, that's good. Now, Pancat said, oh my God, my crush is on. So the cast last week was Matt Campbell, M4, Mal and Chesto. So I don't know who of those three is wow. Pancat's crush. Uh, maybe we need more detail on that, please, uh, Pancat. But he says, Oz will come, he, she says, Oz will come back in the hydrogen era. Australia has endless renewable sources, sun, wind, land, which I tend to mean would might be hydro and, and other things. So, yeah. But tell us who your crush actually is, Pancat. TGV, the very fast train, says hydrogen is the future. Battery storage tech is all but done. Uh, All you can do is add more capacity, but that adds weight, which means more energy consumption, which I suppose sidesteps the question of battery development. And and we we could well be who knows what's around the corner in terms of lightweight, higher storage uh, kind of uh, battery cells. But he says, that said, hydrogen has to be green. Otherwise, what's the point? Um, took BV about 10 years to gain traction. Hydrogen, the tech's older now, but uh, older, but now very modern, will need at least another five to seven years to become mainstream. But once it does, it takes over for transport needs. He also says, uh, good to see Matt host the show. So yeah, it was. It's great to see Matt back and the team. And I won't take that personally at all. Uh, TGV, thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> I think um, uh, just, just quickly, I, I yeah. have just plugged... Um, some keywords into into google and the car was the mercedes-benz glc f cell and it was a plug-in hybrid oh, this, that rings a bell uh, yes yeah. that does ring a bell i found it so there you go good you keep that picture on, keep that uh, picture and we'll put it on uh, on our youtube uh, version for people to see um now finally uh, the lorax has graced us with some feedback thank you hydrogen question mark if it exists as a thing on its own, I'd go right ahead. Otherwise, it's inconvenient to extract more expensive than electricity from other sources and won't likely be available anywhere near me in country Victoria for a long, long time. Seeing as we have barely any EV charges as it is, something that has been in progress for a lot longer. And he, he makes a point, doesn't he? You know, Australia is one of those cases where you think about these big continents, countries in South America, countries in South Africa, uh, in, sorry, in Africa, um, Australia, those big distances, sparsely populated, it, it does present a special set of circumstances that are difficult to, uh, to get on top of. 
Yeah, uh, and like to the point of the comment earlier about, you know, hydrogen maybe being a mainstream option in five to seven years. Like, I don't think it's about the technology so much as it is the infrastructure. Yeah, um, I know totally. we've uh, spoken about that with EVs plenty, but, you know, EV charges, if you look into it, are much more widespread in Australia now than most people would probably realise. Um, yeah. Not to say that the coverage is immaculate, but it's, it's certainly on the way. Um, but hydrogen, there are far bigger challenges around having the infrastructure in place for that. But definitely in a, you know, city to city environment, I could see it happening. It's service stations getting converted into hydrogen refueling stations and yeah, stuff like totally. that. Which has happened um, in California. Yeah. yeah. yeah that's, exactly. that's, that's the thing. I think, I think it's in, um, you know, fuel companies' interests to start looking at this hydrogen thing because, you know, for countries like us, and I think, um, you know, Hyundai had some words on this. They think it's, you know, geographically challenged countries with distances between cities like America, China, and Australia are the ones they specifically pointed out yeah, will yeah. be ideal markets for hydrogen fuel cells. By, by the same token, Tom, how many stories have we run recently on this new hydrogen hub, that new hydrogen yeah. hub? There's a, there's a lot of movement at the station, as it were, in terms of people getting ready to put more infrastructure in. Yeah, absolutely. There's one going in, a, a big one going in in Western Sydney. Um, that yep. was the most recent announcement. And so... Um, it's just we're going to run into problems with um, uh, commercial vehicles in Australia because you know replacing diesel is not easy. It's no. like having a battery electric truck might work in Europe. Like there, there are yep. you know there are brands going to market with battery electric you know heavy duty um, you know tractors and, and um, yep. all, all the rest of it. But that's fine when the next city over is 100, 200 k's. Yes. But for us, if you're needing to ship something from Sydney to Brisbane, uh, you know, replacing diesel is hugely challenging. And, and fuel cell might be the only way we can do it in a zero emission way. Um, I was going to, it puts me in mind of, I think it was Scania had that thing that was like a, a tram or a train rig on the top of it that connected with electric overhead lines. So on dedicated transport roads, you almost had your truck train thing uh going along i don't know where that's going fantagraph i think that was called cool. yeah so yeah. not not exactly practical for some of the overnight transport routes in australia but uh, anyway <laughs> an interesting development nonetheless um and with that we have reached the finish line so i want to say thanks tom thank you and and thank you justin thank you very much and thanks to Mr. Brett Sullivan for his standout recording and production work. During the course of the show, he's taken on, I've noticed, don't know about you guys, I've noticed he's taken on a distinct green tinge. Um, he's either unwell or possibly angry. Um, I know we can be annoying, but hopefully he's just having some fun, right? Brett? Hulky? Um, anyway, um, jump into the conversation. Cars Guides on Facebook and Instagram or email us at comments at carsguide.com.au. Apple Podcast listeners, um, please take a moment to rate and review the show. We'd love five-star review. Um, if you had a minute, uh, that'd be great. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to subscribe to the Cars Guide YouTube channel so you can stay on top of all our latest content. But before we go, you know, I had a lot of fun um, growing up. I remember my dad used to put my brother, my sister and me um, in tyres and roll us down the slope um, in the back garden. They were good years. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nicely done. <laughs>